0: Well, thank you for coming along with us for this time of musical worship and I pray that you've got a Bible. And that you'll take that Bible now and go to Mark or sorry, Matthew chapter 4 with me this morning. Matthew chapter 4, one of the more famous passages of the Bible, Matthew chapter 4. Probably in every Bible you have right now, looking at it, the heading over that chapter says something like, the temptation of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. I titled my sermon for this morning, When Facing a Global Pandemic, Turn to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 because of the nature of our service lineup and how we had planned in the sovereignty of God, building up into Easter, I really didn't have that opportunity to try and come before you and actually talk about what it is we're dealing with. And so I want to start by asking us about a couple of questions. Why? Why and how? Why and how? Because those are the two questions that I have heard most over the last 30 to 40 days. And that will no doubt soon be accompanied with a new question. What now? Why is this happening? Why did the government act this way? Why can't I do this or why must I or we do that? Why did COVID-19 kill my friend or my family member, but not that one? Why don't we have enough medical supplies or beds? Why do these restrictions need to be so harsh or not harsh enough or so long? Then comes the how. How will I cope emotionally, financially, physically, mentally, spiritually? How am I going to see my loved ones? How am I going to pay the bills or supply for my family? How will this end? Will the economy fall or bounce back? For us here at Calvary Baptist in our city and our province, we might be able uh, asking the question, how in our city here are they dealing with the fallout of a massive historic snowstorm coupled with a global global pandemic. And now we've got barrels of oil at under $20. We have mounting provincial death, debt. And how will we survive it all? And soon, I think we're gonna start to see restrictions lifted ever so slowly. Soon, we will move into the next phase of those questions as I was saying, the what nows. Do I have a job? Will I get my job back? What are taxes going to need to be over the next few months or years to pay for all of these stimulus and bailouts? What businesses will come out of this alive? What happens with all those students who lost almost a third of their year or 20 20 to 25% of their year? What about graduation for grade 12 students or those of you that were graduating with your degree from Kona or, or Memorial University? Is the virus gone? Will it come back? Can we shake hands? Can we hug each other again? Can we hang out? How about parents? Can my kids go to the playground or will the hockey season start again? Or how about soccer or baseball? What will normal be? And will normal as I know it ever come back? But here's one for you as Christians. What's now for us? How do we live out the gospel in a COVID-19 world? How do we do church? Is this the new norm, this live stream? Is this going to be our new reality from now on? But let me give you some hope this morning. In the midst of all of those questions, and I wish this is a tip of the iceberg of the emails and the texts and the Zoom calls and the phone calls and all of the ways that I've been communicated with by so many of you as you've expressed your own questions. In times like these, we see all types of emotions and responses to what we are going through, don't we? Maybe you've experienced them. I know I have. We have seen both the good and the bad of humanity. We've seen the coping mechanisms of people and governments and countries. We've seen attempts to have joy, to find the silver lining, to come together and to find peace. All of the complexity of that is woven together, though, with the horror of anxiety, anger, hoarding, and pride. We see resiliency mixed with restlessness. So, where do we turn? What do we do? What do we need? How do we get answers to all of these life's questions? How do we make sense of everything that has happened in the world's life all the way down to your life and mine in the last 40 to 45 days? There's an old song that says, in times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. So be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. The chorus goes, this rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. So be very sure, oh, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Why? Well, this morning, I want us to see the answer in Matthew chapter 4, Verses 1 to 11. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 4. And kids, get together with mom and dad and let's read this together. Matthew chapter 4. This is the word of God. Matthew records and says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights... Obviously, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Christ, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil, in verse 5, took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God the test again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these i will give you if you will fall down and worship me then jesus said to him be gone satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This is where I want us to park ourselves as we consider life, the why, the hows, the what nows of your life and mine in the middle of this pandemic. I did some of the math, and it's not to be alarming, but just to give you an idea of how the world has changed so much. Four Sundays ago, four Sundays ago, 28 days ago, there was 166,000 cases of the coronavirus in the world, according to Johns Hopkins' website. Today, on April the 19th, four Sundays later, there's almost 2.4 million cases in 28 days. Governments around the world have shut down and gone into lockdown. The last I heard is almost 50% of 7.8 billion people are under a stay-at-home order. We've seen governments try to react with stimulus packages and and bailouts. We've seen uh, natural resources fall apart all around us. We've seen helpless situations in Spain and Italy and France and Germany, now the UK and the United States. And we fear what's going to happen as this grips countries like Brazil and Africa and places that have low poverty or or high poverty rates and and dense populations, let alone what's gonna happen in India. And so here in our passage, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew, that tax tax collector who's been converted by Jesus, writing to his audience, probably in about AD 70 or so, predominantly to a Jewish audience, he wants them to know this, Jesus Christ, as you have heard of him, that carpenter's son from Nazareth, is not only the one, he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he's the son of David, and thus... He and he only is the truly anointed king. He goes on and builds his case in chapter one and two. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of promise. He's the only one who can bring peace and forgiveness and restoration to this world. And I know many of you looking at me would go, yes, yes, Steve. Yes, Pastor Steve, way to go. But I also think that Matthew chapter four, verses one to 11 are often misunderstood. You see, all too often, we take this passage and we present it in what seems like warm and fuzzy applications that I think misses the point and the richness of its meaning. And the tragedy in times like this is that too many of us, both the world and the church and Christians, are robbed of the power of the gospel by rightly applying the word of God. But... If you and I will step back and let God be the one who tells us about himself and understand this passage in the right way, in the right application, it will lead to you a stronger faith, a more holy church, and a greater worship of God our Father. So let me say right out of the gates, this passage is not about you or me. It's not about how you and I fight off temptation or fight off the devil This passage is not a three-step program to becoming a great Christian. This passage is not a secret formula for the successes in the Christian life. Oh, and by the way, commercial, in the midst of all this chaos and uncertainty, oh, my friends, where are the prosperity gospel preachers now? the ones that have promised you that if you have enough faith or you do this, the ones of the name it and claim it as we see our whole world suffering at this time, only a true gospel will give you peace. What is this passage about? This passage is about Jesus. This passage proves who Jesus is, why he came and why he was successful This passage is about Satan and about his desperation to defeat the gospel. But more than anything, this passage is about the gospel itself. You see, what Jesus went through here in this time of both, by the way, testing and temptation, it means something. It means we have a Savior, a Messiah, who is not only perfect, but oh, I'm going to be a broken record. I have said this in all of my daily devotions. I've said this in countless Zoom calls. I will say it over and over again. Jesus is the Savior and Messiah who knows what you're feeling. He knows your weaknesses. And that is why Hebrews 4 so emphatically and unapologetically states, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, I think many of you like me we, we understand or we give mental assent that Jesus knows my problems, but he feels them with you. He's felt them for you. Because here's the rest of it. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Ma- Matthew here presents this as the testing, the temptation of Jesus. He does that for a reason because Jesus is supposed to be the son of David, which means he's the king, and all ancient sons of kings had to be tested and proven their right to the throne. The stage for this drama of Matthew 4 is the desert. Again, make sure you always understand your Bible. It's one big story. All throughout the Bible, the desert is the place of both testing and temptation, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And now catch this. The new Israel, Jesus, goes out into the desert to fast and pray for 40 days and 40 nights. Once again, Jesus is always identifying with humanity. Do you see it? Jesus is actually spirit-led out into the wilderness, into this cosmic fight with the devil, And the devil is a real adversary. So Matthew introduces us to the one who has been behind all the resistance and attacks you've read in his gospel, starting in Matthew chapter 1 all the way up. Remember when Mary was found to be pregnant and Joseph wondered and doubted and God sent an angel to him in his dreams and he had a vision saying that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit and that he was to still take her to be his wife the resistance of having to be sent down to Bethlehem, the resistance of when those three wise men come and Herod gets panicked and attacks, and he gets all the baby male sons, two years old and younger, to be slaughtered, the resistance of having to escape to Egypt and then come back, and all the while we learn that the devil or Satan is behind all of these things. And you and I need to realize in the midst of this pandemic, when our emotions are at their wits end and, our, and, our, and we feel like our nerves are like elastics that have been pulled tight, the devil will attack you now more than ever. One man has written, the devil is an intelligent, powerful spirit being that is thoroughly evil, And he is directly involved in perpetrating evil in the lives of individuals as well as on a much larger scale. He is not an abstraction either as a personification of the inner corrupt self or in the sense of a symbolic representation of organized evil. No, the devil is the real enemy of God. The Bible teaches us he leads a host of other powerful spiritual beings that assist him in trying to stop God's purpose. And that is why Genesis 3.15 is so important, friends. After Adam and Eve fell, God said to that serpent, You have tried to do this, and you will bruise his heel, speaking of a coming Messiah, but he will crush his head. So, what we have in this passage in Matthew chapter 4 is the first front on attack of Satan, the ruler of the air, to stop the kingdom of God. And watch, to disqualify Jesus as the human representative for us. And there's one other thing I want you to know and understand. I want you to know the difference between testing and temptation. You see, a temptation is an enticement to get a person to go contrary to God's will. We're all tempted. Everything can be a temptation. But a test comes to both mature us and reveal something to us. It will inform us of where we're at in our faith towards God and being faithful to God's will. That's why next week, Matt Leahy is going to preach and he's going to start preaching through the book of James. And he's going to take us to James chapter one and we're going to learn that God never tempts people in James 1.13, but he will allow us to be tested. Now here's the funny thing. When God tests us, Satan will always come along with a temptation, and I want you to see that. Testing and temptation are often like two sides of a coin. God will test us to show us where we're at on our love for him, but Satan will come in the midst of that test and try to tempt us to think God's abandoned you, or God doesn't love you, or in fact, he'll make up something. You see, every human being up to this point has failed the test and given in to temptation. Adam did. Moses did, Abraham did, the nation of Israel did, King David and all the kings after him. So now, in our passage, Satan, the deceiver, the tempter, is Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to fast and pray, Satan comes and tempts Jesus. But you and I can take something from this. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write down. In Christ, we win over the temptation of the shortcut. In Christ. It's not about you. It's in Christ we win. You see, all three of these temptations are aimed at the humanity of Jesus. And if you're going to notice with me that all three times, Jesus responds from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes passages from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, or 8. And the context of these verses is that Israel has been tested and tempted out in the wilderness, but every time the nation fails. And I want you to look at Satan's attack plan. He is called that tempter, and he comes to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of him fasting and praying. So notice he comes to Jesus when he's his weakest. And you see, all too often, I don't think we think of Jesus in terms of weakness. We love to think of Jesus as being fully God, and that is true, but what makes him unique is that he was also fully man. Don't miss this in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes from jail and he says to the Philippian church, who though he, Christ, was in the form of God, meaning he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we celebrated last weekend, and I want you to notice something else in Matthew chapter 4. The passage actually says Jesus made himself nothing. He was in the form of that humbling servant as he fasted and prayed in that humility for 40 days. And look again at what, at what the devil does. He comes and notice, he says, if you are the son of God, speak to these stones to become bread. Now, I don't want to get you confused by that word if. Satan's not actually challenging, are you God in the flesh? That's not what he's doing. In effect, he's saying, we know you are the Son of God, now prove it by helping yourself. You see, since Jesus is obviously hungry, he's fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, would it hardly be wrong to use his messianic power to feed himself? I mean, why not? And you see, friends, that's the temptation. The temptation was whether Jesus, the God-man, would use the powers that were his and rightly his, but which he had voluntarily, according to Philippians 2, abandoned to carry out his father's mission, the gospel. In other words, here's the temptation. It's get something that isn't wrong the wrong way. Think about it. Food, sex, money, God has a plan. These are all good things from God, and there's a right way and a wrong way to have them and enjoy them, and so Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and this is the passage where God tells Israel they had failed to trust him and his ability to provide, and instead they complained, and they attempted to meet their own needs their way, and so my friends, Jesus resists any shortcomings, shortcuts, He waits for God to provide and he trusts that God will provide even though he's hungry and even though he could meet the need himself. Now think about that in your life and mine. How often do we doubt God? How often do we seek to take shortcuts when we're afraid or we're hungry or we're lonely? How often do we lower our standards when we're dating young people? How often do you cut corners because you think, if I don't date him or I don't date her, maybe I won't, get a, uh, I won't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or I won't have a spouse. How often moms and dads, husbands and wives, have we taken shortcuts with our kids or in our marriages? How often do we take shortcuts with our jobs? How often are we tempted to take shortcuts as we face this global pandemic? But see, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus responds there, and remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve gave in to the shortcut. And so did Moses. And so did Israel. And so did David. David. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Israel demanded its bread, but died in the wilderness. Jesus here denies himself bread and retains his righteousness and lived by faithful submission to God's word. And then he dies on the cross to live again for our benefit. See, Jesus passes with flying colors. Rather than using his power to feed himself, to take the easy way out, to give in to the deception of Satan he leans and trusts and submits to the will of God as father so what do you do when you're facing a global pandemic in Christ you look to him and realize he is the one that's given us power over shortcuts jesus in his humanity turns to the word of god when facing temptation jesus didn't go to a book he went to the book you remember that hymn i quoted The second verse said, in times like these, you need the Bible. In times like these, oh, be not idle. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. So, in Christ, we have victory and power over the temptation of the shortcut. Secondly, in Christ, we win over the temptation of the spectacular. You see, Satan couldn't tempt Jesus to take a shortcut, so now he's going to try by twisting the truth. He's going to try and get Jesus to display his godlike powers. And again, you might, Steve, boy, you're putting an awful lot on this. Always keep this in mind. The whole plan by Satan was to get Christ to use his deity. This is the power of this. Out of keeping with that which was the Father's will... Satan takes Jesus up onto the highest point of the temple. And that was the flat corner on the southeastern side that looks hundreds of feet down into the ravine of the Kedron Valley. It is a beautiful, majestic spot. It's where the high priest would go and blow the shofar on the Day of Atonement. But notice what he does. Catch this. Satan quotes Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan does leave out those words to guard you in all your ways, but he still quotes the passage correctly. His deceit is in misapplying the verse into a temptation that says, hey, Jesus, why don't you prove to everyone here, you're up on the corner. Everybody's looking up at you. You're the center of attention. Show them that you're really the son of God. Show off who you are. Prove your relationship with God. Now, if you were here last, last weekend, does that not sound familiar? When Steve preached on Good Friday and I preached on Easter Sunday, how often the Pharisees in the crowd, as Jesus hung on the cross, they, they goaded Jesus. They, they dared him to prove that he was the Messiah. But Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6 and verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. This is where again the nation of Israel fails, where people fail and Jesus doesn't. Jesus knows that his relationship with God the Father does not need any test to prove its reality. He doesn't need to show off for the world to know that he is the Son of God. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember that time when they come, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and all of the the armies have come, and in Matthew 26, Peter draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of those soldiers, and Jesus stops him and he touches the soldier's ear and heals him, and he says to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Oh, friends, listen to me. Jesus knows in His humanity what He knows in His deity. God loves me and I don't need to prove it. Now comes the greatest temptation of all. Because you see, in Christ, we win over the temptation for power or to be in control. If there's one thing that I've seen released in humanity over the last 40 days, it's our desire to be in control. As soon as our government tries to put standards in place because they're in control, immediately people have opinions as to whether it's good enough or not good enough, whether it went far enough or not far enough, and how long it should last because in, in our humanity, we want to be in control. So Satan takes Jesus. The passage doesn't tell us which mountain, we know it was a high mountain. Some people think it was, it was Mount Tabor, others in different places but it displays all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now you might think this is minor stuff, but notice at verse eight again, Satan shows Jesus all the glory of the world, but none of the sin. It reminds me of bear commercials and the sexually suggestive commercials. They present a world without problems. But Jesus came to remove sin, remember? In Matthew chapter 1, the angel told Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Satan tempts Jesus with the achievement of power, control. In effect, he's saying, The power you want and came for, you can have by bowing down and worshiping me. Now, don't miss this. I won't make you go to the cross and suffer all that pain and stuff if you will do this one little thing for me. Satan says, hey, Jesus, here it is. Take it all. All on your terms, not God's. Don't suffer. Remember that Jesus is 100% human. And Satan offers him a world without pain or sacrifice. Just worship me. But notice that Jesus' response in Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name you shall swear. So now... In verse 10 of our passage in Matthew 4, Jesus takes charge of the situation. He faces his enemy down. And I love this, three words, go away, Satan. (laughs) And verse 11, it simply says, and the devil left him. Ta-da! The victory belongs to Jesus, and Satan must sulk away. And I want you to notice how the passage ends. Satan started by almost asking and daring Jesus to prove himself by saying, your angels will come and take care of you. Jesus resists the temptation to do things out of God's order. And in the end, angels do come and do minister to him. I don't want you to miss the importance Jesus who refused to summon angels who were at his disposal is now ministered to by the angels. Do you see what Matthew was trying to show us? Jesus is the perfect son of God. He is the perfect human representative for all mankind. He truly is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the anointed one. You see, Jesus is victorious where Adam failed. He's victorious where Abraham failed. He's victorious where Moses and Israel failed. He's victorious where David failed. And guess what? He's victorious where you and I fail. That's why this passage is not about you and me. It's for you and me. We are the beneficiaries of Christ. What did Jesus do here? Have you ever thought about it? What did he do here? What is so special about this? Take a few seconds and think about what I'm asking you. What did Jesus do that made him God and made him unique? Right now, kids, think about all the Sunday school stories you've heard. Maybe some of you would say, well, Pastor Steve, Jesus walked on water. And that was certainly something only God can do, but we remember that Peter got out of the boat and walked on water, and he wasn't God. You might say, well, Pastor Steve, Jesus raised people from the dead like Lazarus, but other people in Scripture also raised people from the dead. Remember when Elijah raised the widow's son, or Peter raised Tabitha, and neither Elijah or Peter were divine, well, you may think, well, you know, listen, Steve, nobody did all the miracles like the fishes and the, and the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000 and the man born blind and all these things, but all kinds of people did these types of miracles. Elisha caused the widow's oil to multiply. Peter commanded the crippled beggar to walk. Nathan predicted the Messiah to come through the line of David. But my friends, now listen to me because this is what I want you to take from this. The only one thing that Jesus did for us that no other human being ever did was live this entire life yet without sin. You see, tragically, many of us spend so much time on Jesus' deity that we forget his humanity. And the New Testament teaches us both. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 concerning his son, who was the descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's fully human and fully God. And so I want you to realize that Matthew wants us to emphasize both Jesus' divine conception and his human lineage. You see, here's where I think we get it wrong. Try to imagine this scene for me. Jesus is a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. And he looks up into the skies and thinks, what a wonderful world I've created. I remember when my heavenly father and I discussed creating this world, how beautiful it is. And as he lies there, he thinks further, "Oh, you know what? I'm hungry and I'm wet. I'd sure like my mother Mary to change me. Oh, but poor mom... She's had a rough time of it these last few days. That donkey ride from Nazareth was tough. So I think I'll just let her sleep through the night and I'll wait until the morning to eat and be changed. Or you know what, better yet, I'll just get up and get a bottle and change myself. Folks, does that even sound remotely real to anybody? And yet, often I think we think this. Jesus experienced full humanity. He acted just like any other normal baby. He cried when he was hungry and wet. He slept when he was full and dry. He was dependent on his human father and mother. And although Jesus was fully God, he emptied himself and became fully human with all of those human experiences. And he did this for us and he did it perfectly. Now let me make this applicable to us. Because I want to say again, this passage is not about us, but it is for us. We will face temptation. We're facing it right now. I am just like you. I have sometimes felt like I have been on the roller coaster of emotions. When I heard about Uncle Charles passing away and all the restrictions at the hospital where he couldn't have his family and his friends gathered around him, I got calls this week of other close personal friends to Debbie and I that have had issues that have caused them to go in the, in the hospital, and they've been alone in there by themselves sometimes now for two solid weeks. When I think of all of the seniors in their homes or long-term uh, care facilities, and they're cut off from their family, and you just your emotions just roll with you all over the place. But what a fr- what a friend we have in Jesus. Because he's the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured life on the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And this is because he is that great high priest. So Jesus knows how I feel. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. He's been hungry. He's been tired. He's been tempted to. to, to Uh, circumvent and take shortcuts and to use his power wrongly. And in every way, he passed the test for you and I. Satan is defeated. That's why in Romans 8, Paul says three times, who can charge us, who can condemn us, and who shall separate us? And the answer every time is no one. Oh, friends, listen to me now. This is why Martin Luther is my favorite reformer. Can you believe that he wrote like this in the 1500s? Listen to this. Martin Luther says, it is the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. If I can hold on to the distinction between law and gospel, if I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside, can you imagine that he said that? Even if I sinned, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? Once I debate about what I have done and left undone, I am finished. But if I look at Satan every time and reply on the basis of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins covers it all. I have won. Christians, you and I will face both temptation and even testing over the next days, weeks, months, and even years. God is going to bring things into our lives to show us how much we love Him. And rest assured, when that happens, Satan will come with temptation to say, stop trusting God. But I want you to remember Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus, our forerunner, has gone before us And so, the rest of that passage in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus has faced the temptations for us. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, no temptation has taken you that is not common to man. But listen to these three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape. And that way of escape is the word of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that these words give their power to God is faithful. So what do I want you to do as we leave this time today? I want you to have your confidence in Christ, not in yourself. I want you to have an urgency to ask God for the filling of the Holy Spirit every day. And so when you sin, run to Jesus. When you obey, run to Jesus. When you're tempted, use the Word of God. And remember what Jesus has already accomplished for you. Let God's Word guide you and protect you. And I started with that hymn. The last verse of this hymn says, In times like these, I have a savior. In times like these, I have an anchor. So I'm very sure, I'm very sure my anchor holds and grips the solid rock. And that rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. And so be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. He was perfect and without sin. Francis J. Grimke, who was a Christian man who lived during the last great global pandemic of our history, the great Spanish flu of 1918, wrote this, while the plague was raging, what a comfort it was to feel that we were in the hands of a loving father. Whether we were were smitten with the epidemic or not, we knew it would be well with us that there was no reason to be alarmed. Jesus is victorious where every other human being or nation has not been. When Jesus is the object of your faith and obedience, then you trust not in yourself, but in Christ. And oh friends, young people, visitors, do you know Jesus like this? Have you come to the fountain that is the word word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I call on you to be right with God, the only one that can forgive you and restore you, the only one who loves you and where it makes a difference is Jesus. You'll never be good enough. You'll never find the peace or rest you're looking for in all this confusion. We are all sinners And I don't believe any one of you watching me right now doesn't believe that. And so I plead with you to listen and turn to the one who has purchased the rights of your soul with his blood, his life, his obedience, his death, and his powerful resurrection. Truly, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What do you do when you're facing a global pandemic? Turn to Jesus, the only one who loves you, can love you, and will love you for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, and again, I pray and ask and beg of you that through this medium of technology, those who I love so dearly that make up my family at Calvary Baptist, any visitors and friends that have tuned in for, again, Lord, whether it be seconds or minutes or the entire time, that, Lord, right now, the power of your word preached, the power of your Holy Spirit would speak to me and us. Oh, God, the one thing I have feared more than anything in this medium, because I've been in a room all by myself looking at a camera, is not to perform. It's not to pretend. Lord, this passage has to grip my heart And when I have gone through the roller coasters of fear and anxiety, anger and frustration, when I've been tempted to take shortcuts, when I've been tempted, Father, to want something spectacular or to name it and claim it, when I've been tempted by control and power to know that Jesus Christ has overcome these things which will rob me of joy, steals me from peace and rest, and only destroys me. Spirit of the living God, would you speak? And as we close with a song, and Father, as we head into another week and we don't know what it will be like, even today we'll hang upon the latest broadcast of how many new cases, who's recovered, who's in the hospital, what's going to happen with our economy. Lord, help us to realize, to lift up our eyes to the hill from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. Oh God, speak. Speak to me. Speak to us in Jesus' name, amen.